Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. My point today is a very simple point, and I'll tell you up front. And that is that human experience should be a joyous experience of God. There are several scriptures, such as Acts 17.28, that says, In Him we live and move and have our being. Or Colossians 3.11, which describes Christ as being all in all. Along with these scriptures, you know, there's 1 John 4.7, that he who loves his neighbor loves God. And then Christ in Matthew equates love of neighbor and love of God. That is, when you love your neighbor, you are loving God. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. That is, that in these scriptures, what is being described is human experience should be inundated with experience of God with that understanding we could duplicate these scriptures many times over in the New Testament God in many passages is equated with human experience God is love when you love you experience God God is light I think it's talking about virtue it's talking about understanding God is truth when you walk in the truth you're experiencing God Or as the passage that we're about to read in Corinthians says that God is wisdom. The experience of wisdom is the experience of God. And what these passages teach us is that this should be part of our daily life, our daily activity. When we pray, you know, here when we come to church, we're kind of aware of it. We sing, we take communion. We study scripture together and we're aware we're in God's presence. And maybe even when we hear a sermon, we're in God's presence. But the idea is this experience of God is something we should carry into our daily lives. And what this teaches us is we need to integrate it. We need to practice the presence of God in our lives. He has experienced all things human Christ in the incarnation you know he's taken up human experience that we might have experience of who he is Maximus says we're imbued with the exact characteristics of his goodness and from before the ages he determined that we should exist in him as I'll describe in a minute here I think we've lost that feeling and there's a reason for it we've lost that experiential reality But this scripture also describes why that might be. Let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Human wisdom displaces Christ. He's saying you cannot come to know God on the basis of human wisdom, Greek philosophy, human philosophy, on the basis of abstractions. And like Greeks, we might think we find God in philosophy. That is, that we can find God in human thought. That is, that in and through the strength of our own power of thought. And that's actually an obstacle to experiencing God. God has entered human experience from the bottom, from the cross, as a servant, from the place of a carpenter, a working man, from the place of the poor. The universe, I believe, in Christ's incarnation is lit up with the grandeur of God, but the danger is we don't see it, that we miss it through false experience, through obstacles, a sign, you know, we're seeking God somewhere that he's not. And we live in what is called a secular age. And what that means is that direct experience of God is really just kind of unavailable to us. The universe has been disenchanted for many people, where people once presumed God was at work in their daily life, in their daily prayer, in their daily work. What it means to live in a secular age is that this notion has been disrupted. We don't find God in our natural understanding. And yet the Bible directly equates truth, wisdom, life, love, light with Christ and with the experience of Christ. But the tendency is to say, well, that's speaking metaphorically. We seemingly no longer have direct access to God in the virtues. You know, practicing the virtues, putting on love, hope, joy, peace, long-suffering. That was a way of experiencing God. I don't think we get that anymore. The experience of love is an experience of God. The development of wisdom, having peace of mind, that is an experience of God. And so part of what, you know, the exercise here in the scripture is to say, well, what disrupts experience of God? What disrupts the actualization of existing in him? In brief, I think Christ then is displaced. He's displaced as his own medium. You know, we think, oh, we'll rely on wisdom, we'll rely on signs, we'll rely on something else. He's displaced as a reality. He is his own reality, his own wisdom, his own logic. So philosophy, human wisdom, human experience, human logic. These things are centered on nothing but themselves. They're empty but they become prime reality. 
So the cross, in Paul's explanation, is our entry point into knowing and perceiving God in all things, not human wisdom. And so Christ crucified is the beginning of wisdom, not propositions, not doctrine, not philosophy. This is not to promote irrationality, but reason cannot lay its own foundations. The person of Christ, you cannot encompass in some doctrine, proposition, or mode of reason. The person of Christ is a foundation, and that takes on a singular significance. So that Christ is a logic. Christ is a reality that cannot be fit to an already existing frame. You can't take the gospel and lay it on another foundation. And so in the cross, we see the defeat of these obstacles. You know, what is sin? What is evil? Well, those are precisely the things that stand in our way of experiencing God, that alienate us from that experience. So salvation is describable phenomenologically. We can say, oh, this is what it looks like. We can describe it psychologically. And first, in Christ's confrontation with sin and death, we can describe how he does this, how he defeats these categories, historically, psychologically, systemically, corporately, in the body of Christ. And the implication of the incarnation is that there is a universally shared predicament. We have a problem. People are sick, people are struggling, people are suffering, and Christ addresses that. The healing of Christ is to be brought into our lives. And so two things come together. The plane of human reality and experience, we know because God has entered our world, this is a final reality. If God is here, well, this is, a, this is prime reality. And we also know that the universally shared failure addressed by the incarnation, you know, sin, death, evil, is corrected on this same plane of reality. And that may sound funny, I'm just saying, oh, Jesus saves us, we, we can say what that looks like and what that is. It's not to exclude mystery, but we can describe how the mystery of Christ takes hold in life in love, in virtue, in wisdom. And we can, as with the historical person of Christ, experience and describe what it means for divinity and humanity to be joined in one person. That's the incarnation. This is the profound truth of Christ that exceeds every other truth. And there is no logic or reason that can begin to approach this truth. It's of a different order. And maybe a practical way in which the singularity of Christ shows itself is that Christian faith provides a diagnosis for a problem. It is a solution to a problem, to the human predicament, that first of all, I think Christianity says what this predicament is, that is unique, and it gives us a unique solution. And that's what the incarnation of Christ is about. The death and resurrection of Christ addresses the human predicament 
not by introducing another reality, but by resolving the problem of death through the resurrection. He's raised bodily, right? Death is not the final experience. This contrasts with nearly every other religion, every other philosophy. It contrasts with human wisdom. And I think that's why Paul is saying the cross of Christ is foolishness. Because this doesn't fit any other frame. But what other frame, what the Greeks would do, is they say, well, we have innate immortality of the soul. And they downplay embodiment. Plato says the body is the prison house of the soul. Or as in Hinduism and Buddhism, material reality, oh, this is just maya, this is unreal. Or as in animism, and this was true in Japan, in ancestor worship, people die, but they don't really die. So at Obon, we would go out to the cemetery and we would feed the dead. You know, if they like cigarettes, maybe they like camel lights. I'm, I'm not joking here. It's very often see packs of cigarettes, cans of beer, and you take them out to the cemetery so they can, you know, have a good time. The idea is, though the dead aren't really dead, and death is not a reality. And so the problem of death is real in both Judaism and Christianity, and the problem is confronted. Not on another plane of reality, but Christ is crucified and raised. Christ defeats death. And the resolution to the problem of death, that is the formation of a new kind of subject. A new kind of wisdom. No longer centered on the emptiness of death denial. You know, you can make a whole life out of denying death. You know, I think theology and psychology merge in the description of the sick human subject. Sin creates a deception, a wound, an obstacle. And this gives us one form of human subjectivity that would establish itself through wisdom, through signs, would establish itself. Maybe you just stop there. I'll say something good today about St. Augustine. He, as a young man, describes stealing some pears. And he makes a big deal out of this. He climbed a wall, he and some friends, and they stole these pears. He said, I simply wanted to enjoy the theft for its own sake. I wanted to enjoy the sin for just the sake of sin. I was under no compulsion of need, yet I wanted to steal. And steal I did. He said, I already had plenty of what I stole. I had pears at home that were better than the pears we stole. And I had no desire to enjoy it when I resolved to steal it. I just wanted to steal it. And Augustine then depicts this kind of ineffable absence within himself. He doesn't know why he did it. I did it because I wanted to do it. And of course, he's modeling his stealing of the pears on the Genesis story, you know, stolen fruit. How like that servant of yours who fled from his Lord and hid in the shadows. He's thinking of Adam. And contrary to Greek ethics, evil for Augustine 
It's not a mistaken choice. It's not out of ignorance. It's not a, a category of epistemology that could be regulated and rectified. He doesn't talk about any kind of outward temptation. He talks about, no, I just want to steal the pears. He says, it's for no reason. There's no motive for my malice except malice. He's really describing a kind of radical evil. Not only was there no good that motivated Augustine's action, but he says, no, I mean more. My theft lacked even the sham, shadowy beauty with which even vice allures us. And what he's describing that evil is not accounted for, but it is its own cause. It is the groundless ground. Evil is our attempt to establish our own ground. The fruit of the first couple was aimed at producing wisdom, that they would obtain knowledge of good and evil, apart from knowing God. We call this in philosophy, ontotheology. That is, that we imagine we can establish our own ground. Propositionalism. Oh, that we can establish the foundation our, ourselves. I think it's Platonism. I think it's just the fallen subject. I think we're describing the human psyche. They're all made of the same stuff as Augustine's thieving subject. Christ is not a truth among other truths but is the foundation of truth. There is no other foundation that can be laid than that of Christ Jesus. There is no natural logic, natural wisdom, philosophical logic, natural reason, which can comprehend the fact of the God-man. This is a logic all of its own. And he is his own mediator. Christ is the great high priest. Christ is a logic. He is the point of departure. No other foundation can be laid, as Paul says. But of course, inasmuch as we become like Christ, we become part of the body of Christ, we become Christ, we too enter into this reality. And this is where the book of Hebrews enters in. Which has no genealogy, no precedent, no explanation. And what I'm referencing here is Hebrews 7, 1 to 3. This is the depiction of Melchizedek, this mysterious figure who appears in Genesis. And the writer of Hebrews says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Maximus uses this illustration to talk about how the experience of Christ and the experience of Melchizedek is an experience we can all have. He alone is mentioned by scripture probably because he was the first who through virtue passed beyond both matter and form. That is, material creation is not what we're describing in this experience. He's without mother and father. He's surpassing knowledge. He's not subject to time. That is, Melchizedek is this figure, this shadowy figure in Genesis, and yet in some way, he's like Christ. That he says, and so transcendently, secretly, silently, 
And to put it briefly, beyond all knowledge. I'll say an odd thing here. Jesus Christ precedes Judaism. The experience of Christ comes before the Jewish high priest. You know, Abraham pays tribute to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, like Christ, cannot be reduced to matter or form or genealogy. He cannot be reduced to a particular age. He has been transformed, receiving all the qualities of God, being made in the likeness of Christ. But what is true of Melchizedek, what is true of Christ, is true of all of us. And of course, that's the writer of Hebrews' point. The experience of Melchizedek is open and available to all imitators of Christ. According to Christ, I mean, he says, all who follow him should also deny himself having lost his life. We become without mother, without father, without genealogy. He who loses his own life for my sake will find it. That is, whoever casts aside this world's wisdom, according to Paul. Whoever casts aside this world's desires will acquire the living and active word of God, which is another passage here in Hebrews 4.12. Dividing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, penetrating and becoming a part of a person and who a person is, deeper than that person can even be aware of. That is, his presence penetrates who we are. He is our beginning and end. The life and subject that would, in Paul's description, work his own wisdom, find itself, ground itself, father itself, is undone. We give up one sort of human subjectivity for another. And the word of God creates a new subject, who through putting on virtue and knowledge enters a different order of experience, a different order of existence. We enter into the presence of God. And so the follower of Christ, like Christ, is no longer, we're no longer subject. Yes, we have mothers and fathers, but we're no longer simply subject to that. Yes, we're mainly from Missouri, but that's no longer definitive of who we are. Yes, we're from this nation, but that's not definitive of who we are that we've become like Christ, and we're no longer a subject of a particular time, but we've put on the fullness of the likeness of Christ, and no way bounded by death. That's the point here, because I think human wisdom is always bounded by mortality. And so the conclusion here, Jesus Christ is wisdom. He is an economy. He is a reality. Here is an order of experience otherwise unavailable. Putting on Christ is to put on the wisdom and virtue of God. The wisdom of Christ is Christ. The virtue of Christ is Christ. The love of Christ is Christ. The hypostatic joining of deity and humanity is repeated in all of us. That we all put on the divinity that Christ shares. Not through some sort of experience or sign or ecstatic departure, but through the union of the human and the divine of the incarnation. You know, each week we come, Nina plays, little church in the wildwood, come, 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 
We read scripture. That's an experience of God. We worship and come together. That's an experience of God. Then we go home and wash the dishes. Guess what? That's an experience of God. We plant a garden. We tend animals. We watch the sun rise and set. We live and move and have our being in an alternative experience. That's the Christian reality. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.